quite often there'll be this quiet guy in the background who looks like a nobody. He's the boss. And the whole time he's just been like analyzing and assessing how serious you are. Welcome to the Global from Asia podcast, where the daunting process of running an international business is broken down into straight up actionable advice. And now your host, Michael Michelini. Good day from Bangkok. Sneaking in this podcast welcome message from DCBKK. I'm going to keep today short. I'm heading to the airport in about six hours to go to Smart China Sourcing Summit, where I'll be hosting a panel. So today's show, we have with us Rico, my business partner in the Enter China community, talking about his journey, how he made moves, came over to China, progressed from an English teacher to a business owner, and it is Canton Fair season right in the midst of it. So we have a page with all the events and different things happening at globalfromasia.com slash Canton Fair. And the show notes, as always, globalfromasia.com slash episode 145. All right, live from the my, I guess it's a backyard. I don't know. It's a, it's a gym, like it's an adult <laughs> jungle gym, actually. Yeah, we're in the <laughs> Chinese garden in Shenzhen and... Uh, we have with us Rico, uh, my partner at Enter China. So thanks for being here, Rico. No problem, man. Uh, it's been a long time coming since you're on my uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fun. That was a deep one. I don't know if we're gonna get so deep today. Our, our the Global from Asia show is a little bit shorter than your your podcast. Yeah, I try to do the like, Tim Ferriss like get to know your soul type episodes. <laughs> so you're you're here. You're usually in Guangzhou, and we're doing this in person. So you might hear some squeaking. Chinese baby shoes. It's not my kids. It's random kids, but we are in the backyard. And, uh, you know, I just thought it'd be more fun to do it outdoors and, uh, and, uh, take a break. We're, we're working hard. We're doing webinars today. So we're in between Enter China webinars and you're doing a great job with, uh, talking about the sourcing tips and tricks for people, you know, searching online for Alibaba or the hands down best way to find a factory. There you go. So let's let's dig in a little bit about you. I don't think we'll go so deep, you know. But you're you're originally from Africa, and you're now in China. Um, that's a, could be a long story, but <laughs> let's get started here. Uh, yeah. So I was born in Zambia, Southern Africa, and at age ten, well, basically, my parents had uh, various businesses. My dad, my dad was actually he's an internet entrepreneur, I guess. Um, and then my mom had a couple of retail stores, so. Yeah, at some stage they wanted to move to the States. So at age 10, I moved to the States, was in Orlando, Florida for a couple of years. And then uh, kind of went back for a bit. They went back for a bit and then ended up in Canada. So uh, I kind of, I guess I identify with being Canadian. And uh, yeah, then I was in Canada, I was graduating school and thinking about business and trying to figure out what is the quickest route to becoming a successful entrepreneur. And I came across the Enter China show at the time of the Elevator Life and uh, decided to move to China. Just like, I remember the day was, just, I had this epiphany moment. Uh, me and my friends were studying Mandarin for fun. We took like an introductory course and we're like, let's go try and meet like girls, Chinese girls <laughs> at a language exchange. And, uh, that day I was like going up to every single girl being like, my name is in Chinese. I was like, Oh, Rico. I'm moving to China. Like, was, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, then, uh, eight months later I joined DC and, and, hopped on a plane and came, came down to Guangzhou. Great. That's really awesome. So what year was that about? That was 2014. So okay. the, the, I decided in 2013 and then I moved uh, specifically September 2014. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Yep. And then 
So then what did you do when you got here? Uh, just try to find myself, I guess. Uh, <laughs> actually, the, I met one EC member, Keenan. He was at the time, uh, he's still, uh, he's, he's, he's back in Guangzhou, but he was very much like based here. And uh, he just kind of showed me around. Like that was one of the coolest things that happened to me just on my, my second day in China. I was like, I had no idea. And, uh, you know, he took me around and then I, he helped me find an apartment. <clears throat> and then I started looking, I started studying Mandarin in uh, Guangdong University of Foreign Studies. I changed over to Sun Yat-sen, took, uh, you know, just the first foundation courses and I started teaching English as well. And uh, during that time period, obviously I was a part of EC, so I was like trying to, you know, and, and crowdfunding campaigns was such a big thing within the community. So I had a couple ideas for products. Uh, I don't know if I want to give all of them away, but... <laughs> It was one that was like, it was a travel accessory and it had some special features. I, I honestly think I could still do that campaign in the future. But um, yeah, it was essentially like a suitcase that had, uh, it helped you efficiently pack your clothes so you could get more space. And um, I just, I had the idea and I thought it was a good idea and I got quite a bit of validation from uh, friends and family just telling them. And then I sat down with China Mike actually. Uh, who became my business partner and he was obviously the sourcing master and he had a couple Kickstarter campaigns and I started telling him about the product and he was like, okay, have you ever seen anything like this? I was like, no, it's an original design. And he's like, you know, do you, do you have the money to start making molds for this thing? And I was like, no, he's like, you're probably going to need at least 5k to get a crowdfunding campaign going. And I was like, yeah, I don't have $5,000. So mm. back to the drawing board. Got it. Yep. But you, yeah, like you said, maybe you can you can still keep that in your back pocket, right? I'm telling you, <laughs> look out! Right. So that leads into the next point. So then you got into sourcing, which you're still doing with Source Find Asia, exactly. And uh, China Mike, which is not me. Yeah. Uh, so everybody's clear. <laughs> you should be China Mike as well. <laughs> so how did so so he so you just were mentioning you met him, you showed him your idea, and mm. he gave you some feedback. So then so then how later did you guys get? To do business together. So essentially, uh, I guess when I was when I joined DC and I came down, I, I was one of those members where I was kind of like somewhat I was active but not really active. And what I mean by that is I was I was telling people what I was doing, but I wasn't necessarily like the the guy posting every day, being like, "Hey guys, you know." Um, and I think Nick, this is something that Nick Ramil, uh, the co-founder, he's really good at is identifying strengths in people and I think he saw something in me and he knew that Mike was looking for a new partner in the business and he just made the introduction so uh, we started off with a few projects like I helped him on his crowdfunding campaign the last one that he did and um, also helped him source a couple just you know small sourcing jobs and you know he liked uh, we connected on podcast actually big fan of the Joe Rogan experience that was one of the first conversations that we had and I guess the work that we did combined with our sort of personality is gelling uh he just kind of uh as well for me i was at a stage where i had a, f a couple failed ideas so i was kind of like rearing to start something and i was like hey man uh are you interested in in you know doing something together and he's like yeah i want to revamp source mind asia uh, i'd love to bring you on as a partner and yeah the rest is history very cool so yeah it seems like you know i think we're similar and you know, we're, we're just taking action. We're just, yeah. we're making things happen. And you took it step by step, right? Like, so you're in Canada in 2013 and you're listening to Enter China or watching their YouTube channel. And, and then you, you start practicing some Chinese. Exactly. And then you, you just get out here and just make things happen. 
It's yeah, great, man. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, it's it's simple. You know, I think people overcomplicate things mm-hmm. and they overthink things. I remember when people asked me, why am I moving to China? I was like, well, I'm looking at two guys that are my age, were my age when they moved to China. Not particularly, they, they didn't go to Harvard. You know, they didn't have some crazy background. Just two normal guys that I could relate to, dudes that I could probably have a beer with. And, you know, they, they took the leap and they went to a place where there are opportunities. So... Yeah, and then of course, if they've done it before, it makes it much easier for us, uh, for new guys coming in, right? So anybody that comes to China right now, I'm actually kind of envious because your growth would be much quicker than any of us. Totally, totally, dude. Like, I don't even want to think about my almost 10 years now. (laughs) It was just really shooting in the dark then, man. Now it's internet and WeChat groups and this is crazy now, totally different. But um, so yeah, I mean... you know, we're, we're kind of talking about, uh, your show, you know, so made in China show. Mm-hmm. So it was that, that was after the source find, you know, source find Asia or. Yeah. That was actually, again, one of the first conversations that me and Mike had was about podcasts and, uh, you know, I, I, I dabbled in podcasts a bit, just kind of stupid stuff in Toronto, but I, I did have a little bit of experience in that arena in terms of how to set it up and, and what, what's involved with that. And then, you know, Mike had said he's a huge fan of podcasts. He wanted to do his own kind of podcast. And we, I said, well, you know, like, let's do something that can help promote the business. And we both love it. So, uh, basically started the podcast about three months after the, after we started the business. And, uh, you know, the, the, the approach was to record five episodes, upload them to iTunes, try and get friends and family to review and, and then start to grow organically from there. So what we do is we interview China business experts, similar to yourself. I think the Global From Asia podcast is more uh, financial and, you know, sort of a little bit expansive with Asia. Uh, mine is more manufacturing and China based. Um, yeah. And it's been cool because one of, of, of course, it's helped us get customers, which was the goal. Definitely. But it's also allowed me to interact with people that are significantly more successful and experienced than me and, and learn from them. So um, it's something I actually didn't even think about when I was starting the podcast. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's definitely an awesome way to, to network and connect with really cool people yep. and, and share that with the world as well. So, you, you know, you can, you can help, help others at the same time. So, you know, I think in the community here, you know, sourcing is still a major way of people doing, doing their own businesses and being entrepreneurs, especially in the enter China community. A lot of people are, you know, manufacturing and selling overseas. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see with, you know, members or clients that you're working with? Um, this is something that Mike, China Mike said to me early on, which really resonates with me quite often is I feel like quite a few people feel that China is like a, a giant Walmart. <laughs> and it's like, hey, just, go, just go down the street just, and check just, out the factory. Yeah, can you go go to aisle five and pick out these slippers for me? <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, it doesn't work like that. You really need to do your own research and, and be prepared before you contact the sourcing agent. Um, so that's one thing I would say is preparation is key. Uh, you guys have to know what your product is, how it's made, at least a little bit of how it's made. You don't have to be an engineer, but you can do research into that, especially in this day and age with the internet, right? Um and then secondly from that, I think is, you know, not setting expectations with the suppliers. Um, 
you might think when a supplier says it's going to be good quality, your idea of good quality is very different from theirs. So it's really important to hammer out those details. Mewenti. <laughs> or Yeah, and then at the end, when it's not really what you're expecting, it's chabudo. It's good enough. Um, yeah, so really take the time to set expectations, understand um, what your supplier is expecting in terms of quality and what you're expecting. Uh, do your due diligence. Uh, make sure that, in fact, this is something that I think people don't think about is when, when it comes down to QC. I say QC starts when you're sourcing the supplier. You know, QC doesn't start after mass production or at the end. You, you, the first step is finding the right supplier because mm-hmm. that can make your life significantly easier um, if you find a very professional factory, right? So, I mean, yeah, similar to a business partner, a, you know, a wife, you know, friends. It's it's a long-term relationship. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, so it's take your time. I think a lot of people are rushed and they want to go, oh, I just want to get this order done really quickly. It's like, take your time and, and make sure that everything is set up correctly. Yep. So, you know, I think even for me, when I was selling online, I, I wasn't yet buying from factories. Uh, it was something I did later. And, you know, even we've had podcasts on this show where people are still buying from U.S. distributors. Mm-hmm. And it's something I don't even really know the right answer. But when do you think somebody should start to think about buying factory direct? I even think sometimes you don't always advise people to do it, right? Yeah, like, sometimes I tell people to, you know... Um, not to do it because they're not prepared or they're not ready. It's tough because I think that also brings in uh, a little bit of, you know, some ethical, moral, and uh, maybe even, uh, uh, what do you what do you call it, nationalistic ideals, I guess, if you're from the States and you want to support, you know, U.S. distributors and stuff like that. Like, yeah, there's this you know, patriotism. There's even sometimes with the anti-China ad, yeah. ads we do on Facebook, we get some hater comments. Exactly, yeah. You- it's like, oh, why don't you source from America? It's like, well, the, the reality is, honestly, yes, you can. But of course, if, you, if you're starting off and you want to have higher margins and probably coming to China is the best thing. And then a lot of times the, you, it's just not possible to find certain products in, in the States that are manufactured there just because... Mm-hmm. You know, they don't, maybe they don't have enough workers, the cost of labor is higher, maybe they don't have the uh, actual technology involved with that. Some things, people look at China and they say, oh, well, you know, it's poor quality made in China. There's always jokes around that. But to be honest, some of the, it's, it's what you pay for, essentially. Like if you, you can get the highest quality stuff in China, you can also get the cheapest quality stuff in China. And that really just comes down to, are you prepared to pay the right amount and, mm. and, and put in the work to find those suppliers. I think, yeah, it's about volume. So yep. normally the magic number is a thousand pieces. A thousand pieces, It's, yep. it's kind of like the keyword yeah. you see 1,000 MOQ on. It doesn't seem to even matter what the product is. It's just a thousand, a thousand pieces. Yeah, exactly. But uh, that is negotiable too. But usually the price will get higher if you try to go less. So it's I think it's really just about, about scale. Yep. It's about getting the numbers up there. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, it's definitely scale, getting the numbers up there if you have the budget. Um, and then also, like I said, if you're ready to do the, the prep work involved with that. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think people always learn from mistakes of others and that's always a good way to improve their business or maybe even start without making those same mistakes. So, you know, I remember from your webinar and, and even my own experiences, there's usually a couple of common mistakes or problems that come up with manufacturing. So at least maybe there's others too that I'm missing, but 
the first one would be production is late. You know, like you, you want it to be maybe Christmas order in the U S or overseas Mm -hmm. or holidays or, or how do you suggest somebody deals with like a late order? If the production gets delayed, um, I mean, if the production is delayed, you can always, uh, of course, negotiate with the factory to get discounts or credits on your next order. Um, that's probably the most common thing. Uh, also, just kind of find out why, because a lot of times when the production is late, it means that they probably took on another order when they weren't supposed to. Mm-hmm. And if you have the money, you can pay for them to put your order above other people. You know, uh, I've actually had that situation happen well. with a client where... We, we, so we were mid-production and then the factory said, hey, I don't think we're going to be able to hit the deadline because we have too many orders and we don't have enough workers. So we actually paid for overtime. Good. Um, which actually, and, and we shared the cost with the factory. They said it was going to be $5,000 and then we negotiated it down to like 2000 or something. So like there's, there's ways around that. Um, definitely credits. I think you always want to add a buffer into your production schedule. I think just what I, if you're going to manufacture for Christmas, start in, in, in July, you know, uh, and, but it's better to get the product early than to get, to have it delayed. Agreed. Yeah. So yeah, like in the, uh, in the sales contract that should be covered right before. Yeah, yeah exactly. Not after a lot of times people don't use contracts or assume a lot of things and then so you should have this outlined up, up front. Yeah. So in my, uh, even in the sales agreement template that mm-hmm. we, we've provided for people we through. Could, we can link to that. We link it. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a late fee, you know, there's a late fee involved there. Um, so even if that, even if we decided not to pay f- for the overtime, we'll share the cost for overtime. They would have had to pay us a late fee and it's, it varies depending on the product, depending on the factory. Uh, I was going to say, take into consideration the national holidays in China. There's a lot of them. And quite often the factories aren't thinking about the national holidays when, when they're setting up that order. So they'll say, yeah, it's going to be, you know, 45 working days and you factor that into two months. But in between there's like three weeks of holidays and then you're delayed. So, uh, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're charting out the production schedule, ask them when are the national holidays and, and double check for yourself and factor that into your production schedule. That's a good one. Yeah. Cause they'll, they'll say days, right? And they won't give you a date no i mean they'll say yeah they'll say 45 working days right and then you'll think and then you'll chart it out and be like okay so you mean the production is going to be finished in october and then they'll say yeah yeah it's going to be finished october x date between these days but they're they're not even checking their calendar to see that hey there's a national holiday on october 1st uh we just had the mid-autumn festival last week as well like those two holidays combined are about a week that's going to push your production back right so you want to you wanna take those things into consideration for sure. Makes sense. That's a good tip. And of course, the the classic bad quality. So you they made the product um, and it's not what you thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully you've caught it before it's left China. Maybe. So I guess there's also different scenarios. Maybe I've had the ones where uh, I found out bad quality when it got to America. <laughs> My own experience. <laughs> but uh, maybe we talk about catching it before it's left. Yeah. So this comes down to prevention. Uh, you, you should, I, 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 fortunately, uh, knock on wood, I have not had any situation where we paid for a product and, and it was all bad. Um, what you want to do is of course, if you're, if you're going through that process with the factory first is a sampling phase, um, you know, signing off on samples. If you make any design changes, 
make a new sample or a batch of samples. You can do a test run if you are placing a larger order. Um, you can do a test test run with the production. And I talk about this in the webinar. When you're doing a production test, if you want to test the production line, make sure you understand how many units it re they require you to order to test the production line. Otherwise, they're gonna do the they're gonna make those samples in the uh, engineering department, and there'll be like perfect handmade samples that don't mm -hmm. reflect uh, the production quality. So that's one, and then two uh, spot checks, also called the DPI during production inspection. Um, you could do that ten percent, thirty percent, fifty percent, depending on your product, uh, depending on how the factory manufactures the product as well. Um, so that's th that's super important because you can nip quality issues in the bud. Like if you find that you check at 10% and 90% of the 10% is defective. That's an easy fix, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you only do the FRI, which is the final random inspection at the end, and you find out that 90% of the products are defective, you know, now you have to start negotiating with the factory for them to either give you a credit or go fix it or remake it. And you're losing time. Even if they agree to remake it, it's you're going to lose time. So it's better to have a couple checks in, in between and prevent anything from escalating, right? It makes sense. If, share. if you do end up in a situation yeah, where let's, there's let's do this. bad <laughs> quality, um, pray to God. Uh, no, I, I would think that, okay, just don't react in a, in a don't get angry. That's, that's mm -hmm. the first thing. That's just don't do that. Uh, they want to make money. They know they know that they've messed up, especially when you point it out and it's very clear and you're comparing the samples and stuff. So even if they're pretending like they, they didn't make a mistake, they know it. It's just that you know, Mienza, they want to save face. So just kind of come, be calm and be like, okay, let's come up with a solution. Can you guys remake this? Uh, can, can, we, can we fix it? You know, something like that. Can we work out some sort of deal? where, you know, I get a credit or something. And then, you know what, nine times out of 10, if you are reasonable and you did have a, you did have a sales agreement in place and the factory is professional, they should be able to remake the product um, or at least fix it if it's, if it's not as big of an issue. Sure. Um, so from some of my bad experiences, usually they're, yeah, Chinese factory owners in my experience are very, very level-headed. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to get, at least in the ones I've known, don't get up, don't show their emotions. No. Right, oh, no. you know what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. You're like, and I'm, I'm less emotional than I used to be, but I, yeah, I think also maybe it's a Westerner thing. But we, or I, am more transparent, or I show how I feel. You show how you feel, yeah. <laughs> and then it doesn't seem to even adjust the way that they feel. Then uh, I've been to these factories where I've had bad quality, and I've been sitting in their big wood desk yeah. on the other side and they don't seem to uh... Chinese manufacturers are very very stoic people <laughs> yeah um, I mean just a funny story it's completely unrelated but going on that is quite often when I go to the factories for the first time and we're sitting down in their you know the office mm -hmm. and then you know they're serving the tea and everything mm -hmm. and it's like there's, mo there's a bunch of people around <laughs> yeah. you're not quite sure what everyone's <laughs> function is who are these people but then there's at least a w one dude who tends to be the engineer and he's like giving technical advice and then there's like a sales rep um, a sales rep is usually like a, a, a woman um, and then and then there'll be like another guy on a desk and you're just kind of like talking to these two people and you think only that the sales rep is the only person that can speak English. And quite often there'll be this quiet guy in the background who looks like a nobody. 
and you'll be talking for an hour and a half. And at some stage, he'll just chime in with some knowledge bomb in English. Mm-hmm. And you find he's the boss. He's the boss of, of the factory and he speaks perfect English or close to perfect English. And the whole time he's just been like analyzing and assessing how serious you are. And now that he feels like you're an actual viable customer, now he talks to you. Mm-hmm. And I find that hilarious. They- I think it's negotiation. I think not just in China, but I've read some negotiation books and it's actually an advantage to have more than one person on your t- team that's there. Cause mm-hmm. like you said, they, you can pay more, you can step back from the conversation and, exactly. look, and, and look at it from a higher level Yeah, and then you can decide how to react or, or how to, how to negotiate. Yeah. So I think Chinese are very professional negotiators. Yeah. <laughs> that would be the word. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. And, uh, so do you have any any kind of case studies that you'd want to maybe share about, for, you know, what we've been talking about? Um, yeah, I guess I have a couple. Uh, I would say, so again, going back to the bad quality thing, I, I talked about, you know, QC starts with doing doing your due diligence up front, right? Picking the right factory. Uh, this is a situation that happened actually with one of my first clients. And uh, we didn't actually source the factory. They came to us with a factory. And China Mike was like, look, we should always have an option B, option C, but they were in a rush to go into mm-hmm. production. They wanted to hit bad side. Yeah, bad side. So they were in a rush to go into production. They were like, okay, look, we already, we've been talking to, uh, partially it was because they had been talking to the supplier for four months. And that's also, that also comes down to communication issues and stuff. But uh, they were like, look, can you just please go and, and like assess their factory and then uh, kind of negotiate the price and, and get the sales agreement signed. So, you know, we went down to Shenzhen. We spent two days there. At, went to the factory first day, inspected it, talked about the project. Second day, we told our client that we felt that, you know, the factory was, there was something off. We felt like it was a little bit small for what they were promising. Um, I, we couldn't really pinpoint exactly what it was, but it was like, it was a feeling that we had and trust your gut, gut instincts. Cause you know, you don't want, if there's something off, probably you just don't want to take the risk. But you know that we said, look, let's at least source a couple different options. And they were like, no, uh, we don't have time. It's going to take too long. Let's just sign the sales agreement. So we were, you know, first, one of my first clients, I'm not going to railroad them. I was like, I was like, okay, fine. Uh, so we went down, we signed the sales agreement and lo and behold, we were lucky because we, we made a, we actually, they lost quite a bit of money on that order, but they made a mold and then we went into the sampling phase and the first 50 samples that we got were all bad, like horrible samples. <laughs> and it was just very, and the, and the communication for that initial two months was also abysmal. So we knew at that moment that we had to shift suppliers and, and we were lucky in the sense that we actually didn't go into mass production mm. with them. We, we, we saw these issues up Great. front and early, Great. but I, I credit, I credit Mike, China Mike for that because I really, I had almost no experience. So like he was guiding me and telling me like, this is not correct. And, okay. you know, let's look for these issues and things like that and keep on monitoring that. Another case study, I give an example that I used from the webinar, uh, one of our EC members, he is an Amazon FBA guy where he's just getting started and he had a very small order, right? Uh, nothing, it's not a customized product, very small order and inexpensive per unit cost. And he was just in a rush to get his listing on Amazon because I'm sure you guys have heard about FBA and, and how much money people are making there. It's this gold rush. And he didn't take the time to really set expectations or draw up a sales agreement with his supplier. And he just went based on a sample that they sent him off of Taobao. And Taobao is the equivalent of 
eBay or Amazon, you know. Uh, so he gets the sample. He says the sample's great. Per unit cost is right. Pays and then uh, pays his deposit. They do the mass production. They send it. He pays the final deposit without checking it first. They send it to him because he's based in China. And he was inspecting the the products and literally like 80% of them were unsellable. <laughs> like he couldn't sell them. He couldn't send them to Amazon. And of course, that supplier was just like, well, you already paid us. So, yeah, yeah. you know, good luck, buddy. What he found out was they, the sample that they sent him was not even from their factory. It was like a sample that they bought. And this is often, this often happens as well in China. So that's why you kind of have to, you know, you have to take the time to set the quality expectations. Um, and if something, you, you're saying to the factory, if this happens, then that, right? IFTTT. Uh, <laughs> and then as well, you know, it's checking. Like he should have checked the production before he paid, even though the order was tiny. Like he should have just had somebody inspect that. Um, but I mean, he, it was a small lesson to pay because he only lost about, I think, $300. But still, you know, it's mm. other people might have lost a thousand. Uh, maybe we take a quick break for a photo. Sure. Uh, One, two, three, uh, uh. podcast. Every time I take a picture with you, I'm wearing the same shirt. <laughs> I'm always wearing the same. Thank you. Shisha, shisha. Shisha. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll edit some of that out, but I think we'll leave a part for that. So check the show notes for the picture. All right. Yeah. I remember, I remember him sharing that story. So yeah, I guess the lesson there is start small, right? Start and, small, and, and yeah. be willing to lose some money to make, learn. Make it's the part mistakes. Of, yeah. I, I always joke. With uh, I think I said on your podcast too, but this is my MBA. Like my first few years, mm-hmm. I invested. Uh, it's education, right? So the best way to learn, at least for most people, is is by doing it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, for sure, I consumed so much content around. Like I watched all the Elevator Life videos, which is like a okay. hundred and whatever. And then as well, I you know I read all these business books. I studied business administration management, and nothing could have prepared me for running my whole business in, in China. It's like I learned way more in my first three months, three to six months of running a company than I ever did in four years of college, you know? Um, so yeah, it's just doing it, you know, doing it. you learn from the experience of just doing it. Exactly. Well, 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 we won't say the acronym on the show, but, <laughs> <laughs> but like, so motivation, you know, motivation. like, I know you're a Gary V fan. I mean, yeah. I am too, but you seem like a I think, super fan. I think you think I'm a bigger fan than I am. I just, I kind of got, I, I don't know how this happened, but I started posting in the Enter China private Facebook group every Monday, uh, hashtag Gary V Mondays. And it's just like a motivational video. I was really just getting into Gary V and I started posting stuff. Okay, okay. And then now I was like, okay, I have to do this every week because cool. people were expecting it. Um, but, but I mean, yeah, generally, I mean, I know you medit- we, we meditation, did meditation. Yeah. I think we both, we both meditate. Okay. So I, I mean, this is a conversation I think I, I could go really deep. And yeah, I know this is tough. Um, uh, maybe uh, just a few points. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to, I'll just start where I, how did I get into this kind of stuff? So I got into self-improvement back in 2011. I was kind of I was not like a, a shy, I was shy when I met pe- people for the first time. Um, so I knew that like I had a certain skill set, but I didn't know how to like be myself when I meet people for the first time. So I started to get into, I started reading books about, you know, improving yourself and, and mindsets and things like that. Um, and so it just, I just kind of went down a rabbit hole. Um, one of the books was The Way of the Superior Man. Um, that's one of those books when you read it, it kind of introduces you to other books and mm. a certain way of thinking. 
And then, you know, just going down that whole, um, actively meeting people that were also into self-improvement and, and, uh, people that were actually doing things. Interesting. One of my first customers was a guy that I met through self-improvement forums. <laughs> uh, he's actually my best friend, one of my best friends now. Wow. Um, so yeah, I just kind of went down that rabbit hole and then you know, you kind of, when you start reading those books, you start to surround yourself with people that are also in the same mindset and that those people keep you motivated. And then you're looking at your friends and your friends have successful businesses or your friends are doing fun things in their life and that pushes you. And, um, and then of course, accountability, uh, mastermind groups. That's, that was huge for me. I was, I was quite a lazy person about five, six years ago and I, getting into an accountability group taught me that I could do much more in a week than, than I was originally thinking I could do. Um, so that's huge. And then I've, I've mentioned community recently, uh, with running two companies at 24, I've been, I realized that all the self-improvement that I did while well, it was really good and got me motivated and, and is the reason why I'm in China really, uh, wasn't enough. Like I didn't have enough of the, the toolkit to keep myself, uh, motivated in this, like in stressful times. So because of Tim Ferriss, I downloaded an app called Headspace and that kind of starts you off with 10 minute uh, meditations every day. And then you kind of scale up from there. And so now I meditate every day. Um, it's been super helpful just staying present, um, staying calm and not worrying too much about, Oh, you know, I've got this thing in three months and, and things like that. And, yeah. So, I mean, those are, those are some of the basic stuff that yeah. you can get into. Great. Great. And then also I started reading books about stoicism. Yeah. I mean, recently. I've been listening more than reading because yeah. it seems a little bit sometimes dry. Yeah. But. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a good book for that to get you started would be uh, Ryan Holiday, The Obstacle is the Way. Yep. And then you can follow that up with The Ego is the Way. Great. Thanks, Rico. And yeah, this is uh this has been a great, great talk. And how can people find you online? Yeah, so if you want to reach out to me, of course my email address is Rico at sourcefinasia.com. The website is sourcefinasia.com, uh made in China podcast. So sourcefinasia.com slash made in China. And yeah, those are the those are the best ways you can reach me. Cool, cool. Yep. All right. Thanks, Rico. And of course enderchina.co for people interested in getting involved with the private membership site and uh which we're both part of so yeah we're both partners and uh you know uh, we're doing webinars we're doing monthly meetups we've got a yeah, big canton fair thing too, coming up next too month many things happening yeah but by the time the show is live hopefully things will be a little bit calmed down <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be a crazy october for sure yep all right thank you all right cheers Okay, that's all folks. Rico is a really great guy. I've gotten to know a lot more over the few the months working and together at Enter China. And he's a member that signed up, took advice, was humble, listened to others, and rose through the ranks, and now is even a partner in the community. So keep it up, Rico. You're awesome. So we hope today's show inspired you guys to take action in your business as well as in your life. You may not be happy where you are and heck. Some things I do I still don't enjoy, but we need to just make small steps each day to get closer to our dreams. Let's make it happen and let's do it together. Take care. To get more info about running an international business, please visit our website at www.globalfromasia.com. That's www.globalfromasia.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to our iTunes feed. Thanks for tuning in.